You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Morning. How we doing? Oh, it's always good to have a good cry. I was crying. I don't know if you guys were, but oh my goodness. I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful. I mean, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Well, welcome uh, to the Field Church. Um, We're so glad that you're here. I hope that you have your Bible. Open it up. We're going to be reading from Luke 13, 6 through 9 um, today. If you don't have a Bible, um, we have some for you, and those are going to be located center row uh, in the row directly in front of you. If you don't have one, uh, feel free to take that one home with you. We use the Bible here. Um, we don't depend on our own understanding. We don't lean on our own understanding, as Proverbs 3 says. You know, my, my thoughts, my opinions are just that, uh, but the Word of God is eternal and enduring. If you don't know me, uh, I'm not the head pastor here. Although I know many of you guys, uh, some of you I don't recognize. My name is Mike Lindstedt. Um, I'm a lover of Jesus Christ. I'm a husband to Mandy. I'm a father to Lexi, who's not here right now. Um, this is like the one time she's not here, and it's good. My wife can actually pay attention now. <laughs> and also, I'm the uh, co-founder of the Nehemiah Project, which is a biblical counseling uh, and recovery center. It's right across the parking lot. I'm an individual who's been saved from the depths of my own depravity, just like you guys. I have no merit of righteousness before God in and of myself, and I certainly uh, have no merit to stand here before you guys and expound the word of God to you. You know, seven years ago, I was homeless. I was living under a bridge in California. Um, The Lord literally pulled me from the muck and the mire and cleaned me off, and uh, he transformed my heart for my good and his glory. And if you're not a lover of, of Jesus Christ today, then my hope and prayer for you is that you'll become one um, after hearing this sermon. It's going to be for your good and for his glory. But before we get into the text today, we, it's a new month. Sam asked me to choose a scripture for scripture memorization. And so, um, you know, I went and just into prayer. I asked the Lord. It's, it's his church, you know. And uh, I wanted to see what he would have us um, think about, to, what he would have us to dwell on this month. You know, uh, what happens in here is extremely important. What the thoughts are that we're, that we're constantly marinating on, that's extremely important. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. But as I was praying, I was just led to Revelation, Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 4. Um, the reason why I felt that the Lord placed this, this particular scripture on my heart to have all of us memorize is because it describes heaven on earth. You know, heaven, how refreshing, you know, man, the thought of heaven is not one that we typically find ourselves dwelling on in the craziness of life today, but we would do well to focus on it. You know, I've, I've recently uh, read a pamphlet on heaven that was written by John MacArthur, and I want to just read to you guys directly uh, an excerpt from his pamphlet titled The Truth About Heaven. And speaking of heaven, MacArthur writes, we will bask in the glory of God realizing at last our chief, our chief end, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
The psalmist wrote, in your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Continuing on, he says, such a thought is unfathomable to our finite minds. But scripture repeatedly makes clear that heaven is a realm of unsurpassed joy, unfading glory, undiminished bliss, unlimited delights, and unending pleasures. Nothing about eternal glory can possibly be boring or humdrum. It will be a perfect existence where we will have unbroken fellowship with all of heaven's inhabitants. And he he ends with this, life there will be devoid of any sorrows, any cares, any tears, any fears, or any pain. And this is exactly what our, amen is right. Oh, I can't wait. This is exactly what our scripture memory verse uh, for the month of May says. So I'll direct your attention to the screens and let's read it together. You guys ready? One, two, three. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Mm. Beautiful. It cannot be boring or humdrum. I love how John MacArthur said that. But I know it's a little bit wordy. Okay? I understand that. That's okay. It's four verses that, as Pastor Sam and I were just sort of talking about it for a second, what's more important than you necessarily memorizing it word for word, although that's extremely important, I'd rather you have that in your mind. Just think about heaven, right? Just think about heaven. Okay, you guys ready to get into the text? Let's do it. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles. Luke 13, verses six through nine is where we are going to hang out for a portion of today, again, like Pastor Taylor said, you know, really we've been in one long sermon by our Lord, uh, I don't know, for the past uh, 20, I don't know, 20 weeks, I don't know, 12 weeks or so. And that sermon that our Lord's been preaching starts in, in chapter 12, verse one of Luke, and it ends here today. So I get the, the blessing and the opportunity to sort of preach to you the culmination of just a long sermon that our Lord's been preaching. So we're going to be doing some review today as well but it's necessary, and so we'll get into that. Okay, let's read the text today, and then we'll jump in. Here we go, Luke 13, six through nine. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. 
So if you've been attending service for the past couple of months, then you know that we've been in this super long sermon starting in 12 verse 1 through 13 verse 9. And during Jesus's sermon, he's covered many topics, primarily focusing on spiritual hypocrisy, but he also covers worldly materialism, worry and anxiety, unfaithfulness to God, love and a love of ease and of comfort. He also covers unpreparedness for his own return, and he talks about societal and familial division because of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, all of these topics have one specific thing in common. They all stem from sin issues of the heart, and they all boil down to issues of misplaced worship. You see, humans are sinners by nature. To use the terminology of the parable today, our sin prevents us from producing the fruit that our Lord desires. One of the primary teachings of this parable that we will draw out today is that without the Lord's life flowing through us, we can never produce the fruit that God desires, meaning we cannot live a life that is pleasing to God in and of ourselves because we desire to be autonomous and we've chosen to rebel against our creator. And all we can produce is bitter fruit, if anything. Now, the word autonomous comes from two root words, auto, which means self, and nomos, which means law. We want self-law. We, we desire to be in charge of our lives. We desire to be the one has, who has final authority over what we do. The result of this desire to be autonomous is misplaced worship. We worship the created things of the world rather than the creator. And we worship anything other than the one in whom we were created to worship. And when we do that, we sin. As we continue on in our sin, we inch closer and closer to eternal death. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that we get paid by sin in death. The wages of sin is death. That's what it's gonna pay you. That's what you get for it. And when we die here on earth, we're gonna stand before the, the divine judge. And we're gonna reap what we've sown for the divine judge judges righteously and he judges impartially. This, this is part of the main point that Jesus has just been hammering home to his audience throughout this entire sermon. And this is what many other places in the Bible teach. Now, we already read Romans uh, 2, this little excerpt, but I wanna extend it a little bit farther. We're looking at Romans 2, verses 2 through 11, and it speaks about the impartial judgment of God. It says this, "'We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself?' that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be fury and wrath. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and then also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Did you guys catch that little phrase back uh, in verse, I think it's verse 10? That phrase is for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth. This phrase accurately describes the natural operating mode of the entirety of the human race from birth until death. Ephesians 2.3 says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and check this, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
The Bible says that the human, that human nature is a naturally self-seeking nature, which means that it is naturally sinful, which makes all of us deserving of God's wrath and eternal death. The divine judge declares us guilty and sentences us to what the divine law prescribes, which is eternal death. And those who inherit eternal death will dwell in a place called hell. This is a place that does exist and is characterized by the absence of the presence of the Lord. Look at 2 Thessalonians up on the screen, verses 3 through 10 in chapter 1. It, this describes the place to us. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he addresses the faithful church that's found in Thessalonica. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Hmm. So according to this text, eternal destruction is what will be given to those who, quote, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't often think of the gospel in terms of obedience in today's American culture. The gospel is often marketed to religious consumers as a, quote, nice option for you amongst many spiritual ways of living. And Jesus is often presented as a loving God who loves you just the way that you are, no matter what. Now, this half-cocked presentation of our Lord to the needy sinner leaves out the fact that Jesus is the righteous and just God who demands absolute self-denial and absolute loyalty in those who follow him. Understand this, that God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Do not be deceived into a half-hearted commitment to Christ by any charlatan who tells you that you get to live your best life now full of all the gifts that the world has to offer you while you also follow Jesus. Jesus requires your entire heart, no matter what. And in our teaching today, in the parable of the fig tree, he reveals the patience that he has over his creation in waiting for mankind to repent. And he also reveals the fact that he is the divine judge who will judge righteously and impartially. Today's sermon is titled, God's Patience and Kindness is Meant to Lead You to Repentance. <clears throat> I encourage you to seriously listen to the words of our Lord today and to reflect on the nature of God and on the status of your heart. Today, we're also going to look at why Israel, the chosen people of God, had failed to repent as a nation. Israel is the Bible's example of the stubbornness of the human heart to repent, even in the face of undeniable evidence that Jesus is who he says he was, that he's the Messiah, and that he should be worshiped as such. We're gonna plumb the depths of God's redemptive plan for the world by understanding why Israel was unable to repent. My hope and prayer for us today is that, is that we leave this section of Luke with a deep understanding of not only the responsibility that mankind has to repent, but also a deep understanding of the Lord's sovereignty in salvation. So today, in our Lord's sermon, we're gonna hear all those wonderful things. Let's prepare our hearts as we take an infinite, or look at the infinite mind of God. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, speak through me, please. God, I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, Lord God. I am not exempt from this sermon, Lord God. We are all in desperate need of your grace and your forgiveness, Lord. And the goodness of the truth of the gospel is that you have paid our penalty, God, by sending your son, Jesus, who took your wrath, your punishment for sin on his own body, went down to the grave, defeated death, and three days later, he rose, thus signifying that his sacrifice was acceptable in your sight. And God, that is our hope, Lord. The gospel is not a one-time event, Lord God. It's an ongoing event, Lord God. We constantly need the truth of the gospel, Lord God. We've never arrived. Lord, we need your grace, Lord. Please, Holy Spirit, speak the truth through me and plant the word of God in our hearts and let it grow. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, now let's remember where we're at in the entire context of the, bo the book of Luke up to this point. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God as he heads towards Jerusalem. He's headed towards Jerusalem in order to accomplish his redemptive mission by dying on a cross and being resurrected from the dead and thereby defeating death and making a way for all who follow him to also overcome death. In fact, we just recently celebrated his accomplishment of this very thing, right? Back in Easter. Now, his journey uh, to Jerusalem began all the way back in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 51, and it ends with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is found in Luke 19, 27. So far, we've seen Jesus teaching his disciples along the ever-increasing multitudes. Now, make no mistake about it, guys. Jesus was extremely famous by this point in time. It, I mean, he has like a crazy big fan base, right? I mean, just look at Luke 12, 1, and your Bibles are up on the screen. It says this, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. Just stop to imagine that for one second, trampling on one another. I mean, this is like rock star status. This is like Black Friday sales at Walmart before COVID. Yeah, I mean, this is a big deal, right? And, and the crazy thing was is that Jesus did not appeal to the carnal flesh. He wasn't saying that life would be easy if you followed him or that you'd become exceedingly rich or exceedingly great. In fact, his teaching was exactly the opposite of what appeals to that self-seeking nature and sinful nature of mankind. Look at Luke 9, 23. This is what our Lord says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, the word translated deny here in the Greek is the word aparneomahi, which literally means to deny utterly, to disown or to abstain. This word is essentially an emphatic double negative, right? It's a compound word coming from two words, apo, which means off and denotes separation. And the other word, arnaomahi, which means to disavow, reject, abnegate, deny, or refuse. Off and deny yourself. Put it off and deny it. That's what he's getting at. Now, just to be very clear, his followers knew exactly what he meant. Jesus could not have been more direct. This wasn't a cryptic statement or a spiritually symbolic reference to some monastic lifestyle, and it, it wasn't open for any other interpretation than the straightforward one. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he literally meant deny yourself to the point of being willing to go to death for me. Now, his followers didn't have a hard time understanding what Jesus meant here. Crucifixion was very common in the Roman Empire. The highways in the Roman Empire were sometimes literally lined with crucified victims as a reminder of what would happen to you if you decided to act in opposition to the divine emperor of Rome and his kingdom. However, the Jews of Jesus' day had a tremendous disdain for Rome and were eagerly awaiting their Messiah. 
who was the promised redeemer, who was to overthrow their oppressor and establish his rule and reign here on earth, his kingdom. So even though the consequence for opposing Rome would, could be brutal death, the Jews would rather be on the side of the Messiah when he came. And there were rumors that Jesus seemed to fit this description of the Messiah. So despite Jesus's hard teachings, his fan base was crazy big. Now, back in chapters 12 through 13, Jesus has been in Judea on his way towards Jerusalem. And he's left a pretty sour lunch meeting with a group of Pharisees and scribes. You know, those, those meetings never seemed to go very well. Uh, the Pharisees really hated Jesus. Uh, but Jesus wasn't trying to please people. He, was tr- he came to do the will of his father, not, not win friends. So off Jesus goes from the Pharisee's house towards the final stage of his mission, towards the cross at Jerusalem. And as he was going, he's teaching on the kingdom of God and he's healing all who came to him and who were in need. Now, one of the absolutely amazing things about our Lord was his ability to distill the infinite vastness of God's attributes down into easily digestible stories known as parables. In today's text, we're gonna take a look at one of those parables, right? The parable of the fig tree is one of his many, many parables. And it's easy for us to just gloss right over these things, right? Especially when we're like checking the boxes in our you know, daily Bible study. We're like, all right, cool, parable, done. Next one, all right, cool. But we would only be doing ourselves a disservice if we did that because contained within this particular parable that we're looking at today are the summation of the vast teachings on the justice and righteousness of God, the mercy and faithfulness of God, the intercessory work of Christ as our redeemer and God's divine decree for his plan of redemption. It's, it's simply staggering to think that all of these truths are interwoven in this entire section from Luke 12, 1 to 13, 9, but they are. So in order to better explain the parable of the fig tree found in our text today, I feel it's necessary to revisit the teachings of the preceding sections in Luke 12, 54, leading up to our text today. So flip back in your Bibles to Luke 12, 54, in order to see our first point today, which is God judges righteously. So examine your life. Luke 12, 54 through 59 says this. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now in this parable, Jesus has clearly shown that the Israelites were in dire straits. The promised Messiah had come to earth and was right in front of their eyes, but they couldn't seem to clearly perceive who he was. Why couldn't they perceive who he was? Because they were hypocrites. Look at verse 56. Jesus calls them hypocrites. And by calling them hypocrites, he lumps them into the same category as the Pharisees and the religious elite of his day. Remember Luke 12, 1? This is what it says. And he began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, in this parable, Jesus basically says to the crowd, you know, you're correct about the weather, but you know nothing about the Holy Spirit because you are hypocrites. You're blind and you do not understand the day of your visitation. And because of this, you're still in your sins and you are in danger of God's judgment. Let me, let me illustrate this another way. When counseling people at the Nehemiah Project, Pastor Chad Wiles always speaks of something called theoretical belief versus practical belief. Now, an example of theoretical belief is when a man says that he's a, quote, family man, and he's all about loving his family well. But his practical belief, which is revealed by his actions, actually shows him to love his career over his family because he spends 80 hours a week working in the office 
And then he justifies it by telling himself that, that this is how he loves his family well. All the emphasis on being the provider, which actually shows this man, which actually allows this man to justify the worship of his idol, which is success. You see, the words that are coming out of his mouth, they don't line up with his actions. Loving your family well consists of much more than being a financial provider. We as human beings are, are actually really good at dressing up our idols in religious and spiritual garb. And that's just one of many, many, many examples that we all do. Now, the Jews here are stuck in the same era of their ways. The Jews actually had a long history of hypocrisy. Their, quote, theoretical belief was that they were the people of Yahweh, right? Who loved the Lord their God and trusted in the Messiah's deliverance from foreign oppression, which in this case was the Roman government. But their practical belief was that Jesus couldn't be their Messiah because he didn't fit their understanding of who the Messiah was. So therefore, they rejected him. This rejection of the Messiah left them on the verge of destruction. And Jesus provided them with a direct warning of their hypocrisy here. Now, the Greek word for hypocrites is hypocrates, which means an actor under an assumed character or a stage player. He's basically saying, y'all are stage players. Y'all are fake. That's basically what he's getting across to them. The Jewish people were called to be God's chosen nation who would bring the light of the revelation of Almighty God to the rest of the world. What a tremendous privilege. What a tremendous privilege that was. But sadly, the Jews of Jesus' day had lost their way. They wandered off the divine path that was set before them as they were enticed by the gods of the other nations. Their true desire was to be like the nations of the world rather than to be pleasing in their God's sight. Look at the screen. Isaiah 29, 13 says this very directly. This people, speaking of the Israelites, draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. That's where Chad gets that whole theoretical belief versus practical belief. So the people of God acted like the people of God insofar as they followed the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, but their hearts were far from truly loving the Lord their God. Their sin cut them off from their Savior. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. It's up on the screen. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were, were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worships and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. The Jews were in the final years of God's patience. History tells us that the Roman government destroyed Jerusalem around 66 to 70 AD. And Jesus was murdered at the hands of the Romans about 35 to 40 years before that event because of the constant pressure from the Jewish people who were being led by their religious teachers to murder him. The Jews as a nation did not repent and they reaped what they had sown. Now, was it just for the Lord to give the Jews over to their sin? The answer is yes, it was just. Why? Because the Jews were guilty of sin. And also because God is the creator. And by definition, he has the rights of the creator to do what he wants with the creation. And in his mercy and patience, he gave the Jews ample time to repent of their unbelief. So it's not as if they didn't have enough time. And God's patience and kindness with his chosen nation had been tested constantly ever since, their, ever since he first delivered them from Egypt. I mean, that was literally thousands of years before the final destruction of Jerusalem. And in his mercy, the Lord literally warned his people before they ever even entered into the promised land that if they ever turned their back on him, that it would be to their own demise. 
I'm going to read a, a lengthy portion here from Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 20, but this speaks to one of the heart issues that they had that is also found in our Lord's sermon through 12, 1 uh, and 13, 9, back in Luke. It says this, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness in manna, uh, with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and that might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord God makes before you to perish, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Notice what this passage says demonstrates. It demonstrates that being fully satisfied in things other than God will lead you down a very dangerous path. The blessings of wealth and the pursuit of other so-called gods became a snare to the hearts of the Jewish nation, and that led them astray. To sum it up, listen to the description of Israel's story in Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 through 18. This is known as the Song of Moses. Now, Moses uh, sang this song or preached this, this sermon to the second generation of Israelites whose fathers died in the wilderness wanderings, okay? They're sitting on the precipice, the cuff of the promised land. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is telling them their history because they were all under the age of 20 years old. Some of them are very, very young. So Moses needs to remind them of the sin of their fathers. Don't repeat that sin is essentially the point of this. So I'm gonna read this whole thing because it's the word of God. It says it better than I ever could, but there's a lot of things that we need to also take from this. So I'm going to read this whole thing. You all follow up on the screen. It says this, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth and my teaching may drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his way is perfect. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider your, your, the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the most high gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. 
He made him ride on the high places of the land and he ate the produce of the field and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with the fat of, of lambs, rams of, uh, of Bashan and goats with the very finest of wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek, then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Jews were, worship, were guilty of worshiping demons over their redeemer God. God's patience did not lead them to repentance. They chose to love demons and wealth instead of to love their God. This leads me to my next observation, which has to do with God's rights as proprietor over his people or rights of owner over his people. Beloved, does not our Lord have the right over his chosen people to demand that they evidence their love for him by obedience? Does the master of his slaves not have the right to expect that they obey the master's commands? Look at 1 Corinthians 7. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was called when, uh, likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And look at what Ephesians 5 says about Christ as the husband of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice, the purpose for which Christ gave himself up for his bride in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, set her apart, Christ didn't go through brutal death on the cross so that his bride could simply just do whatever she wants. Christ did not bear the full brunt of his father's wrath and be separated from the father's love in our place so that his bride could be unfaithful to him and continue in her sin. No, I tell you, he fully expects his bride to love him. And that love is truly exemplified in obedience by living a lifestyle of worship to Jesus Christ. Just imagine for a second, and your significant other, your wife or your husband, never respected what you said. And imagine that your significant other actually desired to be with someone else while all, the while, while all the while saying that she loved you or he loved you. Such rank hypocrisy and unfaithfulness cannot be simply ignored or overlooked. And yet this is what our Lord has put up with for thousands of years with his chosen people, Israel. Enough is enough, says the Lord. You will reap what you have sown. The Jews have continually sown unfaithfulness and soon they will reap the whirlwind of God's wrath. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, all of the truths that apply to the Jewish nation before Christ came the first time now apply to us until Christ comes back the second time. We're the church, we're his called ones. We must understand this, that someone cannot be a part of the eternal bride of Christ and at the same time be focused on worldly pursuits. That cannot be the overall driving factor or force of your life. Let's turn back in our Bibles now to Luke 12. We're gonna look at verses 13 through 15. Here an individual <clears throat> interrupts the crowd, or sorry, an individual in the crowd interrupts Jesus by demanding that Jesus tell the man's brother to divide his inheritance with him. Look at the text, 
verses 13 through 15 in Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This man was representative of those in the crowd. We'll call them Jesus fans who were following Christ around because they wanted something from him other than what he came to offer, namely redemption and the eternal inheritance prepared for the saints from before the foundation of the world. They wanted earthly blessings more than they wanted eternal blessings. You know, we see the same thing in today's easy believism of cultural Christianity. You know, the quote, live your best life now subsection of the so-called church is pervasive. They're simply more fans of Jesus than there are true followers. I mean, Jesus spoke of, spoke of this himself in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, when he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And Proverbs 14, 13 tells us this, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. It seems right. You know, deception doesn't seem wrong. Deception seems right. That's why it's called deception. Guys, I pray that this body of the field church would be a gathering of followers and not fans. We would be a generation of people that seek his face and live in obedience to his word. We would be well to do that. Now, there's another observation to consider about the Jews of Jesus' day that I think is pertinent and relevant to today's culture, cultural consumer-driven Christianity. It has to do with growing up in a Christian home, okay? The Jews of Jesus' day thought that by simply being descendants of Abraham, that they were automatically in right standing with God. Remember the words of John the Baptist earlier in Luke's gospel? When he alludes to this assumption in Luke 3, verses 7 through 9, he says this, I always laugh just because the way that he greets the crowd. I mean, just look at this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, I'm, you brood of vipers. <laughs> like, what if Pastor Sam just gets up here every Sunday? You brood of vipers. Like, dude, not good, right? But he knew that he knew the hearts of the crowd. He said, you brood, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that, therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When, when John said that God could raise up children from these stones, he was getting to the root of the heart issues that the Jews had. They were convinced that they were in right standing with their Lord primarily because they were Jews. That was enough. And in our section today, Jesus is harking back to the reality that one cannot be born a believer. Or in today's vernacular, one cannot be born a Christian, right? Growing up in a, quote, Christian home does not automatically qualify one for salvation. Going to a building that we call a church every Sunday with your parents does not make you a Christian. No, no it does not make you a Christian. It's faith and repentance that do that. And the Jews were not in right standing with God by virtue of their parents' righteousness. And, and by extension, neither are we. One cannot simply rely on the faith of others to count for themselves. You, as an individual, must repent and believe. This is all packed within Jesus's point in the first parable. That his fans who simply wanted the blessings that come with being around Jesus were hypocrites. And they were in danger of imminent judgment and eternal death. 
If you, like these Jews, believe that you are in right standing with God because you were, quote, born into a Christian family, you must think again and examine your life. Is the primary driver of your life the glory of God? Do you live a life of faith that produces the fruit that is pleasing to God? Remember, throughout this entire section in Luke 12, 1 through 13, 9, Jesus has been teaching against hypocrisy characterized by worldly materialism, worry, anxiety, unfaithfulness to God, and love of ease and love of comfort. Jesus refers to these individuals who have worldly pursuits as their all-consuming desire as hypocrites, stage actors, fakes. And Jesus sums this up in the parable of the fig tree by telling us that he came to the fig tree in his vineyard for three years and he found nothing, no fruit. All he found was a barren fig tree, Why keep a barren fig tree in your vineyard? So I ask you, is your life characterized by the works of the flesh? If it is, then you, like the fans that follow Jesus around, are in danger of imminent judgment. And how can one know the condition of his own soul? He must look at his actions and his character and then compare them with the word of God. So what are the works of the flesh according to the word of God? Galatians 5 gives us a very great list. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and I love this, and things like these, all-encompassing. In case I missed something, if it looks like that, it's on this list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the word for do here in the Greek has the sense of continuous action. It's not a one-time event. It's a, you could think of it as making a practice of such things. Those who make a practice of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, is your, character, is your life characterized by anything on this list or things like these? If this is the character of your life, then you have to repent and place your faith in Christ and then follow him. Once you do this, your life will begin to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is found just a few verses down in verses 22 through 23. And they are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Now, just one word on lists of qualifiers, okay? While these two lists uh, given in this portion of scripture today are extremely helpful, There's always a tendency for sinful mankind to want to like check the boxes, right? Oh, I did that, I did that, I did that, I did that, I'm good. I am righteous. That's not it. Why this is dangerous is because checking the boxes, so to speak, leads to, tends to lead to spiritual pride. Now the Jews were hyper-focused with checking the boxes instead of checking their heart to see whether or not they truly loved and adored God. Like, let's briefly just look at one example. There's, there are so many, and when I was preparing for this, I was like, I'm already going way too long. I need to cut it down. So we're gonna look at one, but it's uh, turn in your Bibles because it's not gonna be up on the screen. It's in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. <clears throat> Mark 10, 17 through 27 says this. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Now, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the guy said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus, Jesus said, looking at him and loved him. I just want to stop there for one second. It's like Jesus knew this guy's heart and he didn't get all like, you must repent, bah, 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 you know, start slapping him with a Bible. He just, he just loved him. He said, okay, okay. Jesus looked at him, loved him and said, you still lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In the NASB version, it says he had great property. And that just reminded me of a real estate agent or something like that. But this man had great, great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The rich young man thought that he had followed the law so well that he couldn't even think of what he had missed in his pursuit of righteousness. He thought he checked all the boxes. But Jesus knew that his heart loved his possessions more than it loved God. So Jesus hit him right where it hurts and told him to get rid of the things that kept him from wholehearted abandonment and wholehearted loyalty to God. Notice the summation of this teaching in this portion of scripture, though. In verses, can you guys put it back up on the screen? In verses 26 through 27, I just want to make a quick note about this because people tend to go, well, rich people aren't going to heaven. That's not true. That is not true. That is not the point of this teaching, and this is it. Verses 26 through 27. The summation is this that salvation is impossible for man to achieve on his own. God is critically necessary. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. If you try to claim your own righteousness as your merit before God, you will utterly fail. Sin is too powerful for us to overcome. We must have Christ's righteousness. So in your pursuit of God, do not fall into the trap of, quote, checking the boxes in order to be righteous, okay? Just believe in Christ's righteousness. Repent from loving your sin and turn to loving Christ. Examine your life. Be honest with yourself because God will judge righteously and impartially. impartially. My next point in the review of our text leading up to today's section is repent with urgency. Repent with urgency. Why is, it, why is repentance of the utmost importance and why should it be done with urgency? Well, Jesus answers these questions in the next portion of scripture in Luke 12, verses 58 through Luke 13, five. So let's take a look at our Bibles in, in, uh, starting at Luke 12, 58. It says this, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Jesus says, make an effort to settle with your accuser on the way to the magistrate. What does this mean? Well, I'll explain. As you're going in your life, as you're going along in your life, you sin. And your sin is demonstrated by the attempt to assert your own authority over your life instead of submitting to your creator's authority. By doing this, you and I are breaking the creator's divine law. And we are in fact guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors against the king of all creation. 
You're headed towards a day when you will die. And when you die, you will stand before the divine judge, who in this example is the magistrate. And when you arrive in the divine courtroom, the books will be opened and your charges will be laid before you. What, you, what will you say to these crimes? You cannot say in truth that you are not guilty because there is a clear record of your guilt. The judge will condemn you, hand you over to the officer who will take you to prison and there you will serve out your eternal sentence unless you can post bail. Now, the problem is you will never be able to post bail because your funds are insufficient to pay the debt. The only way for you to avoid serving this sentence is by humbly throwing yourself at the mercy of the one who can serve your sins in your place or post your bail. This is why Jesus has come. He has come to serve your sentence and to pay your debt before you are condemned for your crimes. So Jesus says, settle with your accuser on the way. In other words, turn to the only one who can save you before it is too late. Your accuser is God. The magistrate is God. The officer is God. And the prison is hell. Let me tell you guys a personal story. Many of you guys know my story, but my old life, uh, apart from Christ, involves some crime. I know it's hard, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. I'm just kidding. I've been in and out of jail more times than I'd like to say. And I've certainly stood before enough judges to understand the process of what Jesus is talking about. I was guilty of the crimes that I was being accused of, and I had nobody to pay my bail or to plead my case before the judge. So as a result, I got to do my time in jail. But if I had someone to, who have, would have paid my bail, I wouldn't have had to go to jail. And better yet, if I had someone who would, who would have taken my place in jail and paid the penalty that was due my name, I would have been free. Guys, understand this is why Christ, he, this is why he came. Your penalty, he came to pay your penalty in your place and set you free from your sin. If you're not Christ's, then you are guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors against the Lord of Lords. And you you can have a redeemer who will willingly pay your penalty if you would only repent and believe. Repent means this. I'm going towards my sin. I love my sin. I repent. I turn. I go to Christ. That's what that word means. Amen. Repent and believe. This is Jesus's point in the par parable. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Now, Let's place ourselves back into the perspective of the crowds that were listening to Jesus teach. The response by some in the, in the crowd to Jesus's parables was to report a story to Jesus about an atrocity that was committed by Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea at the time. Look in your Bibles at Luke 13, verse one. Now there were some present at this very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Apparently, there was an instance at which you know, some Galileans were slain during an act of worship and their blood was mixed with the sacrificial blood. This would be an absolute atrocity in the minds of the Jews. There's probably not many other instances where something could have been more sacrilegious than this. But why did the Jews even bring this example up? It almost seems out of place. But remember, let's take this context in its proper cultural context. Remember, Jesus is, is currently on his way towards Jerusalem. And early on in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says that Jesus had entered into a village where Mary and Martha lived. And Mary and Martha are the sisters of a man named Lazarus, whom some of you may remember, Lazarus died and Jesus brought him back to life ten, uh, four days later. That accounts in Luke, uh, I'm sorry, that accounts in John 11. So the question is, where did Mary and Martha live, right? When John 11, verses one and verse 18, it tells us, it says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. 
So Bethany was a quiet and secluded village that was about two miles east of Jerusalem at the foot of the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It was the final stop before, uh, before Jerusalem for travelers coming down from Jericho. And Jesus would often stay there where he, and he, before he, or as he ministered rather to the city of Jerusalem. Now, why is this important to know exactly where he's at, right? Because it gives us some insight into the cultural point uh, uh, about the Jews, into a cultural point about the Jews. The Jews had racial tensions with other people groups like the Samaritans, for example, located to their north. And they also had a territorial superiority complex. What do I mean? I mean that the Jews who were from Judea, where Bethany is located, generally thought that they were better than the Jews from Galilee. We don't have time to find all the places in the scripture that tell us this, but we're gonna look at John 1:46. Philip, if you guys remember, Philip was one of Jesus's uh, chosen disciples. When his brother uh, uh, Nathaniel hears about Philip finding the Messiah, he says this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Philip says, come and see. Like, we understand this sort of thinking, don't we? I mean, is it not true of people in in St. Tammany Parish as well, right? People from the North Shore think certain things about people from the South Shore. People from Mandeville think certain things about people from St. Bernard. Look, I'm from California and I know, oh man, I know exactly what you guys think about people from California. Look, these Jews were no different than any other sinful human being. So perhaps we've got a little bit of this going on in the background here in Luke 13.1. And also Galileans during this time period were among some of the most disruptive Jews around. There's a record in the scriptures as well as in uh, history books like the works of Josephus about rebel leaders who were Galileans who were constantly leading insurrections against the Roman government. One example in the scriptures is in Acts 5.37. It says, uh, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. And he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. Now, this guy right here, he was a a particular Galilean who was the founder of a a violent Jewish national party known as the Zealots. The Zealots were notorious for violent rebellion against the Roman government. One of the Zealots was actually chosen to be a disciple of Jesus. You guys remember this? Luke 6, verses 14 through 15. Simon, who who was named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. Dudes that roll with Jesus, man, like that guy hated tax collectors and Matthew's a tax collector. You know what I mean? It's crazy. But Jesus chose some rowdy guys to follow him. But my point here is, is that these local Jews are essentially looking to their circumstances as an indication of their right standing before God, okay? That's my point. And they're basically saying, well, Jesus, we must be right with God. I mean, look at what happened to these Galileans, right? They were slaughtered while they were worshiping God. I mean, God enacted that righteous judgment in the house of God. They must have not been right with God since they were, you know, brutally slaughtered while they were worshiping. This is actually a form of self-righteousness playing itself out. And Jesus responds to this by speaking directly to their hearts as he so often did. Look at verses two through three in Luke 13. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He gets straight to the point. God is sovereign in life and death. We don't know the day that we're gonna die and stand before our maker. And I think it's safe to say that these Galileans probably didn't wake up that day and expect to die, right? I mean, it's highly doubtful that they were you know, going to church and thinking, man, I'm gonna get killed in church today. They weren't thinking that. I don't think that when I come here. And thank God we have a police officer outside to, to you know, help us out. But I mean, 
No one thinks that when they go to church or when they go to worship God, but Jesus is reiterating his main point that he actually made earlier on in his sermon in Luke 12, 40, that you must be ready not only for the return of the son of God, but also for your death, right? Don't be caught being a hypocrite. Prepare for your death. How do you prepare for death? By making sure that you're in right standing with God. How do you get in right standing with God? By having your sin atoned for. How do you have your sin atoned for? By repenting and placing your faith in Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. So Jesus flips the conversation back on to these local Jews with another example of people who were simply going about their business and then were suddenly crushed by a falling tower. Look at verses four through five. Or how about those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other Jews who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is addressing that territorial superiority complex while reiterating his main point. In other words, he's saying these sorts of unforeseen tragedies can happen to anyone and everyone. Do you remember those 18 local Jews from Jerusalem? Yeah, tragic, but death comes to all in various ways and it does not take into account where you're from, how you feel about it, or whether or not you're ready for it. So repent and be ready for death unless you, or, or else you will perish. Now, these two straightforward examples illustrate Jesus's primary points, points throughout Luke 12, 1, all the way up to our text today. So to sum it up, Jesus', Jesus message in this section can be stated like this. Do not be a hypocrite like the Pharisees. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions or your social status amongst your peers. Your life consists in whether or not you are in right standing with God and whether or not you are about your father's business. Your biggest problem is not your level of wealth here on earth. It is your sin. And your sin is keeping you from being eternally wealthy in heaven. You can predict the weather based on what you see, and yet you cannot seem to perceive the fact that you are spiritually dead based on what you yourselves are currently concerned with. I tell you, the, big, the answer to your biggest problem is staring you right in the face, he says to them. So repent before time runs out, and you will, or you will certainly perish. Now, all of this leads us into our text today and into our third point, which is God's kindness and patient forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance. And I have three minutes. Here we go. <clears throat> so reading the text one more time, Luke 13, six through nine. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, remember, Pastor Sam told us that a parable is a story that comes alongside a truth to provide clarity to that truth. So the truth that our Lord is clarifying to the Jews who are listening was that God is patient, he is kind, he is merciful, but he is righteous and he is just. This parable illustrates to the Jews specifically that they were on the verge of experiencing God's righteous judgment because they had spurned his patience and kindness for thousands of years and hypocritically continued on in their sin. So in this parable, Jesus actually utilizes familiar symbolism that his direct audience would have easily recognized, which is the fig tree. Now, this fig tree is used in some places in the Hebrew Bible to describe prosperity and peace in the land of Israel. I'm gonna skip all this, but I'll give you guys the scriptures just to look at this. 1 Kings 4.25 mentions this. Micah 4.2 through 4 mentions this. And Zechariah 3.9 through 10 mentions this. And I'll actually read this one. But remember, the fig tree is used as a symbol as peace and prosperity. So Zechariah 3.9.10 says, For behold, on this stone that I have set Joshua... 
On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its uh, inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his fig tree and under his vine. So the fig tree was associated with safety, with peace, and with prosperity, and this is key, whenever it was used in connection with the removal of iniquity the forgiveness of sin. However, that very same symbol was also used to speak of divine judgment whenever the unfaithfulness of Israel was associated with it. Let's take a look at Hosea 9, 9 through 10. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah, and he will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the days of Gibeah, go look at Judges 19 verses 22 through 30. And if you're unfamiliar with the reference of the worship of Baal Peor by the Israelites, this can be found in Numbers 25, verses three through 18. Now, these two examples are actually quite disgusting. And because there's children in the room, I'm not gonna read them, but suffice it to say that these are examples overflowing with sexual violence and pure evil that was conducted by Israel, the chosen people of God. It goes to show the absolute depravity of humankind when we are left to our own devices separated from Christ. But as we can clearly see, the symbol of the fig tree is associated with corruption and divine judgment whenever it's used uh, in reference to the unfaithfulness of Israel. The history of the Jews is one that reveals to us, uh, that reveals this to us, despite that despite the fact uh, the human race's best efforts at being morally righteous, we can never attain to the divine standard of our own, uh, uh, the divine standard of morality on our own. Apart from God himself intervening and providing the righteousness that he requires, we're utterly inadequate and we fall desperately short. This is all baked into what Jesus is saying here, guys. So in order to not be hypocrites, we need God's very life flowing through us. And let me say it this way. In order to produce a life that is pleasing to God, we need his life flowing through us. And the fruitless fig tree in our parable today reveals to us that without his life flowing through us, we cannot produce any fruit at all. In order to better understand this, let's just take a quick second to, uh, to reflect on the unfolding of redemptive history, starting with the Jews in the Old Testament and leading to the church in the New Testament. Now, the plan of redemption began in eternity past when God decided that, before, uh, that from before the foundation of the world, he would choose a people for his own possession through whom his life would flow into the rest of the world. First, God chose Adam to reflect his nature and his life to the rest of the creation. Adam and Eve were deceived by sin to disobey God and they are received by, deceived by Satan rather, and they sinned. Subsequently, sin entered into the world and God cursed everything in creation. But all hope was not lost as a promise was made to Adam in Genesis 3.15, that from Adam's familial line, a redeemer would come who would be chosen to redeem fallen humanity from the curse of God. Second, Hundreds of years later, when mankind's evil had become totally pervasive on the earth, God chose a man named Noah to preserve the familial line by instructing Noah to build an ark that would protect, protect his family while God judged the evil of the world by drowning the world in the flood. Third, God chose a man named Abraham to, pr to preserve Adam's familial line through which the Redeemer would come. Abraham was to be the one through whom the nation of the Jews would be born. Fourth, hundreds of years later, God chose a man named Moses to be the deliverer of his people through whom the promised redeemer would come. 
Now, Moses was successful in delivering the Jewish nation from the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt, and he led them to the promised land. And on the way to the promised land, Moses led the Jewish nation to a mountain in the desert between Egypt and Canaan, and this mountain was known as Mount Sinai. It's here at Mount Sinai where the Lord God Almighty officially declared his law to his people and declared to them their purpose. Look on the screen at Exodus 19, verses four through six. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Jews were singularly the chosen people of God through whom the promised Redeemer would come. They were the familial line of Adam the people through whom God's life would flow to the rest of the world. But as time progressed, the Jews failed to keep the covenant that God had established with them in Mount Sinai. God revealed that he would adopt, God then revealed that he would adopt other individuals into this familial line who were outside the nation of the Jews. These chosen individuals are known as the church. It's you guys. And this word in the Greek is the word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. Called out from what, you may ask? the ones who are called out from the curse of God, called out from their sin. Beloved, meditating on this truth will simply stagger your mind. I'm almost finished. Ephesians 1, 4 says this of the church, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The apostle Paul here is referring to God's decision made before the foundation of the world to include us, people who are not Jews, into the family of God. People describe, uh, Paul rather, describes this reality in Romans 10 by using a metaphor. He speaks of the grafting in of the church into the olive tree. The olive tree is another commonly used symbol in the Old Testament used to refer to Israel. And look what he says, Romans 10, 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, he's addressing Gentiles, non-Jews, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the, the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. This is true, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Why did God graft people into the familial line of Adam? Well, the reason actually ties into the parable of the fig tree. What we have to understand here is that God was able to use the self-righteous hypocrisy of the Jews to bring the Gentiles into Adam's familial line which is the family of God. Take a look at Romans 9, 30, verses, uh, verses 30 through 33 in Romans chapter nine. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of, some, of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Paul basically reiterates what Jesus is telling these Jews in our text today, that the way to right standing with God is not found within yourself. It doesn't even matter that your father is Abraham. Unless you individually repent from your hypocritical self-righteous works and place your faith in me, he says to the Jews, you will stumble over the stumbling block and perish. This is all packed within the parable of the fig tree. God planted Israel, his fig tree, and he expected fruit. As a nation, they've failed to provide any fruit. But because this is true, they are in serious danger of being uprooted and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, is this unjust on God's part? If God knows everything before it happens and ordains everything to happen before it ever does, then how can he punish Israel for their failure? Beloved, is, not, is it not true that the owner of the vineyard has the right to do with the vineyard as he wishes? And is it not true that the planter of the fig tree has the right to expect fruit from his planting? And is it not also true that the planter has the right to uproot and to start anew after trying all methods of successful cultivation and still receiving nothing from his labor? The answer to these questions, of course, is yes. The owner of the, fig, of the vineyard has the moral right to do as he wishes with his land, and he has the moral right to expect fruit from his fig tree, since this is the very reason for his planting of the fig tree in the first place. So God's judgments on his fruitless people are not cruel and not immoral, but they are righteous and justified. His judgments are exercised in infinite patience and are rooted in righteousness. The people of God are those who produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They are those who are about their father's business and who are continually focused on building their father's kingdom, not their own. God as owner of the, of the vineyard and the planter of the fig tree has the moral right of proprietor. He has the right of expectation over his planting that it will produce the fruit of his desire. And if his planting does not produce the fruit of his desire, then why should the dead tree take up the ground? He should remove the deadness and graft in fresh branches or uproot the entire tree and plant a new one. And this is the logical conclusion. And this is exactly what God has been doing throughout all of redemptive history. He has been grafting in new branches to the olive tree and adding new members into his chosen people. I wanna close with this. Over the past two months, we've been looking at one long sermon, guys. Starts in Luke 12, one, goes all the way to our text today. The Lord has been very explicit in his teaching, the summation of which is this. Do not be a hypocrite. Examine your life, repent, or you will surely perish. So I say to you and to myself, let's examine our lives. Let's be honest with our assessment. And let's pray to God that he would reveal to us whether or not we are in fact producing the fruit that he desires. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you so much uh, for Jesus, who is our only hope. That has been made abundantly clear today. And God, help us to wrestle with difficult texts in the scriptures, God. Help us to wrestle with these things, but help us to never come to conclusions that are found outside of the text of scripture, Lord. You are sovereign and you have the right to do what you want because you are God. And thank you, Lord, that you want to give us mercy. We love you, Lord God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.